Open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6, 8-23. This is our last sermon in the Elijah-Elisha series. So it's come to an end, and I, I kind of have mixed, mixed feelings about it. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to do this passage because when I did, when y'all voted to do this instead of David, um, I had Naaman in mind, and I had this passage in mind, and I said, good, because I've always wanted to preach on those two passages, so I was really excited to do that. What are we going to do after this? Uh, we're going to do probably, which is the hardest thing for a pa- any pastor will tell you this, the, the, the type of sermon they have the hardest time doing and do not look forward to doing are Advent sermons. Isn't that weird? I can attest to that, though. So I'm probably going to force myself to do some Advent sermons. And then after the Christmas season... Uh, I think we're going to do the Gospel of John because I'm not leaving it up to you to vote this time. (laughs) But maybe uh, within the Gospel of John, we're going to probably hit some mini-series, just like we've looked at depression when we were in Elijah. We'll probably discover some mini-series embedded in John that we'll spend a couple of weeks on. After John, I'm thinking Jonah. Uh, But I think maybe I'll put Jonah out there and another book out there, and we'll act American again, and we'll vote. Okay? All right, so here's... Anyone here from New England? Okay, Tim. And I don't know you, sir, but you're from New England. Where are you from? Maine? That counts. Serena, where are you from? Massachusetts? That, that definitely counts. Can anyone spell Massachusetts? Yeah, there we go. M-A. All right. Every small town in New England has a haunted house. And anyone from New England knows that. Simsbury, Connecticut was no exception. Uh, Our family moved from Houston, Texas to Simsbury, Connecticut uh, when I was going into my freshman year in high school. Can you imagine that? What cruel parents I had that would take me growing up in Houston, Texas to New England at that particular time of my youth. When we drove into Simsbury for the first time, we saw the welcome sign. Now, my brother's, he's three and a half years behind me, so he's, he's in junior high, maybe sixth grade. Uh, we saw the sign that said, Welcome to Simsbury, founded in 1670. And Pete leans into me and says, Yeah, it still looks like it. I mean, we were coming from booming Houston. Houston is, I was told in London two years ago, Londoners told me, Do you know that London's no longer the most international city in the world? Houston, Texas is. Houston was starting its boom at this point. I mean, it was booming. It was modern. It was like everything glitzed. Everything clicked. There was restaurants, you know, like McDonald's. We get into Simsbury, and I'm like, do they have a McDonald's around here? I mean, there was just nothing there, right? Well, Simsbury Manor House was built in 1820, and it was still standing at this time, barely. But that's older than Waco, y'all. Waco's 1848. This house was built in 1820, um, and no one had lived in it for decades. It was the perfect haunted house. It sat on the center. It was in the center of town on top of a hill, far removed from the main street, barely visible through these ancient trees older than Texas. Uh, It was four stories high. It was boarded up, it was broken down, and it was begging to be investigated by a bunch of 15-year-old boys 
and a tag-along little brother named Pete. I remember the day. <laughs> it was the fall. It was a Sunday, and it was at dusk. The sun was making its descent, and we pried open a boarded-up window on the first floor and climbed in. We were instantly hit in the face with this cold, damp, moldy, cave-like air. And all of us shivered. We decided to explore in two groups. We'll have one group go upstairs and one group descend downstairs to the basement. Um, I led the group down to the basement and took my little with me. Fifteen minutes into our exploration is when it happened. <laughs> one of the boys in the upstairs group screamed. And I'm not talking a polite scream. I'm not talking a movie scream. I am talking the kind of scream where all your blood immediately leaves your body all at once. I'm talking about a scream I never knew even existed until I heard it. And he screamed. And instantly, two groups of boys from two different parts of the house, ten boys total, ran for their lives. And we all converged at one spot at the same time, a little four-inch gap and a window that was pried open, and no one wanted to be the last boy <laughs> through that hole. It was pure mayhem. I'm talking mayhem. I took Pete, because he was small then. I grabbed him, and I threw him head first through the window. And then I dived in after him. We are running through the woods like roaches scattering from the light. We are being busted with branches. I'm trying to find the kid that screamed. I finally catch up to him, and I go, what happened? What did you see? And he turned and looked at me while we're running. He turned and looked at me with sheer, utter terror on his face. And he goes, it was hideous. <laughs> For six years, ten boys had nightmares about it was hideous. Six years later, I'm a sophomore at the University of Massachusetts. I'm home on Thanksgiving break, and I'm in the kitchen waiting for my mom to make a huge breakfast. Um, I remember gathering uh, the papers that were on the table, and one was the local Simsbury paper, and I saw the front page, and it was an article about the Simsbury Manor House. And I immediately sat up a little straighter, and this little tickle at the back of my neck, my hairs went up, and I grabbed it and I started reading and I looked and I saw that it was being renovated into like what's going on here, right? Which started the revolution here. It's being renovated into a fancy restaurant and, uh, and hotel. I kept reading. It's a local man in his 80s who owns it. It's been in his family forever. He's so excited to finally have it restored to its former glory. And every time I heard that and was reading that, I went, yeah, right. Not until you get rid of it is hideous. Then I couldn't believe what I was reading. <laughs> Every Sunday at dusk, this man said he would go for a walk with his dog on the property. So the upstairs group 
is coming down the stairs which come to the front of the house. The old man's out walking. He hears noise in his house. He goes to investigate. There is only one pane, a glass pane, existing in the whole house. It's right by the front door. He looks in to investigate at the exact same moment that our friend looks out. It is hideous. <laughs> oh, my word. Now, y'all, seeing more, seeing more, seeing more changes everything, doesn't it? That paper changed 10 boys' lives that had been going in a certain, <laughs> a certain direction for six years. It changed everything. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Second Kings. 8 through 23. Once when the king of Israel was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man had, of God had told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and see, seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. 
And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? And he answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. <clears throat> so, Lord, we ask that you would give and grant <clears throat> what you say in this passage. Would you shine on the page? Would you give light? Would you open eyes? Would you do what only you can do? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 15 times the story employs words for sight. So this is a story about sight. This is a story about seeing more. Seeing more changes everything. So what happens when you don't see enough? What happens when you see, but you don't see enough? What happens when you see, but you don't see more? What happens? What happens when your boyfriend breaks up with you? What happens when you struggle to pay your bills? What happens when... Someone spreads vicious lies about you. What happens when you don't get accepted into the college you've always dreamed you wanted to be in? What happens when, when your child's out of control? What happens when you don't make tenure? What happens when you're a king and you insert a secret army base just inside the borders of your mortal enemy so you can launch lightning strikes and many invasions to take the heart and will out of your mortal enemy and to send secret assassination teams and squads to take out high-ranking officials in the other person's government like the king of Israel itself, that every time you set up a base, they're forewarned every time. What happens when you don't see enough? Look at verse 11. And the mind of the king was greatly troubled because of this thing. Look at the phrase greatly troubled. This is the same Hebrew word used in Jonah for the catastrophic storm that is sent on the sea that is sinking the ship that Jonah's in. In other words, the picture here is unbelievable. What's experiencing this king is experiencing a mental storm. His mind is storming. His mind is raging. His mind is rolling. His mind is boiling. His mind is twisting and turning. We call it today, he's inside. She's inside her head and can't get out. 
He's storming for control. That's why he's so obsessed with Elijah. Do you see in verse 13, you can hear him just yelling, Where is he? Where's the freak? Because he is a freak. Because the king has just told his servants, just tells him, Listen, when you whisper plans in your bedroom, the freak hears. And he commands his best men. He gets his best men around him. And just a little time out. Where's Naaman in all this? This is the king he serves. Now, maybe, um, you know, they've been at war for so long, in Civil War, Cold War, so long. Maybe this is before Naaman gets healed. Maybe this is an incident that led to him learning more about a prop. Who knows? We're just not told. I just wanted to bring it up. Where's Naaman? That's what I started reading. Am I going to find Naaman in here? Is he one of these advisors to the king? Is he one of the men? What, who, where is he, right? Well, he's being obsessive, right? Go find him. Bring him to me. When you and I don't see enough, here's what happens. We storm for control. Control is all over this passage. When you're when your girlfriend breaks up with you, if that's happened, what happens to us? What happens to you, teenager, when you struggle? You storm for control. What happens when you spent years and years and years trying to get tenure at a local university and you get denied? What happens when you're misunderstood and they're just getting you wrong or just flat out being mistreated and, and lies are being told about you, perhaps publicly like on Facebook, you storm for control. What happens when you wake up in the middle of the night and, and your mind is not letting you sleep? Storm for control. What happens when you go for a run in the morning and you just are thinking through everything that you're going to say to that person or how you're going to fix this thing? Storm. What happens when we don't see enough? We storm for control. The king's men bring back the report. Hey, we found the freak. He's in Dotham. And so thousands of soldiers, there's a little humor here. They're going after one man. One man, Right? Thousands and thousands of soldiers. The text says a great army. This is thousands and thousands of soldiers on horseback. This is thousands and thousands of soldiers on the modern equivalent of a tank called chariots. And in the night, they surround the city of Dotham. And while they're surrounding the city of Dotham, Elisha and his servant are sacked out. In the morning, like most people, Elisha's servant needs to do his business. He goes outside. Now, there are three beholds in this text. It's like the text is saying, behold, look, see. And every time the text says behold, it gives you what the person sees. This is the second behold. The first was, he's at Dotham. Look, he's at Dotham. The freak. The second is, behold, see, open your eyes. There's an army with chariots and horses all around the city. And Elisha's servant turns into Chicken Little. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. He freaks out. 
What happens when you don't see enough? Well, the first thing you do is you storm for control. The next thing you do is you realize you don't have it, so you fill up with fear. And it swallows you, and it consumes you. We call that anxiety today. We have all kinds of names for all kinds of disorders that are just normal, overwhelming emotions called anxiety and fear. That's what we do. When we don't see enough, we get anxious. When we don't see enough, we fill up with fear. When we don't see enough, fear ends us. It literally disintegrates your inner person. You collapse in on yourself. There's no stability. There's no sense of self. You're lost. It decreates us. But it's incredibly important for us to see at this point what's happening in the story. The army of angels have been there the whole time. They came in at night, whenever that army came in at night. And I don't know who was leading it, Gabriel, I don't know. But they came in with fire. And they surrounded on the mountains, and they surrounded the prophet himself, and they were waiting and watching for a simple command, and they can end everything just like that but here's the catch the servant saw what's true he just didn't see more he just didn't see enough and so he freaks out one summer morning I was out running well I, I want to say this that you know what that means about fear it's unnecessary isn't that interesting? Unnecessary. Fear is an unnecessary pain in this circumstance. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. Fear is necessary. You need to have fear. That's called adrenaline, and you need it. And you need it in certain situations. God made us that way. But this fear that this servant is experiencing is unnecessary internal pain. Unnecessary. He just didn't see more. They were there. He just didn't see him. One summer morning, I'm out running. I'm three-quarters of the way into the run, probably about 15 minutes towards sunrise. So you can see things, but you can't see clearly. You can look out there see clearly. But at this point, you know, things are shadows. Things are movements. You can, you can make out buildings. You can make out figures. You can make things out. You just can't see them clearly. I caught a movement from my left side. And it was a huge creature. And by the time I caught the movement out of my left side, he started snarling because he knew he had me. He was quiet until that moment. He snarled when he knew I, he got me. I quickly looked for a tree. There was none. I quickly looked for a car. There was none. There was only one thing I could do. I, I only had one option. I had to turn and face this beast. And so I turned and faced this beast, and he's 20 yards away, and he's 15, and he's moving quickly. Lightning speed. It was scary. It was creepy. 10 yards away, I braced for impact. And then there was this loud snap. And this beast was just ripped right off his legs into the air. I think he did maybe two flips and landed on his back because that's when he ran out of chain. Now, what difference would it have made in my life if I would have seen that chain? 
Oh, I can tell you a lot of difference it would have made in my life. I can tell you right now I didn't need to change my running shorts. No, that did not happen, so I don't know why I said that. Um, I would have kept running. I would have kept running. I would have kept running, and I would have been full of confidence. I would have been full, filled with security, filled with safety, filled with a sense of, that thing can't get me. No fear whatsoever. And not only that, there would have been lots of trash talking at that dog. <laughs> Tons. Seeing more changes everything. Everything. Our problems, we don't. What happens when we don't see enough? We, we storm for control. We fill up with fear. And the last thing we do is we lose more sight. I want you to look at verse 18. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. Now, this is important to note. This is not a physical blindness. Please hear me. Some folks, some scholars say it is. That's ridiculous. How can it be a physical blindness? This is thousands and thousands of soldiers on chariots and on horses being led 15 miles to Samaria through rugged terrain. Notice what the text says. They followed Elisha. They're following him. So this is not a physical blindness. What is this? This is a bedazzling blindness. This is a fool's blindness. In other words, spiritual blindness carries within it more blindness. Spiritual blindness has a wage, a payment embedded in its very existence called more blindness. When we're blind, we become more blind spiritually. This is so important, y'all. The Bible sometimes talks about God well, sometimes it talks about sin punishing us. In other words, the wages of sin is what? Death. So sin carries its own wage. It's embedded in it. To turn away from life, what else is there? So if we turn away from life, the wage, the, the embedded reality is there's nothing else but decreation, death, Gehenna. The netherworld, the watery grave, Abaddon, Sheol, the realm of the dead. Sometimes the Bible speaks that way, and it talks about how sin carries its own wage in it. It carries its own storm, carries its own payment. And then sometimes the Bible says, God punishes our sin. God lets us go. In Romans, that's what Paul says. Paul says the wrath of God, the justice of God is that you want to leave him and he says in his wrath and justice, this is what it's described as, you may go. Both are true. Both are happening here to the Syrian soldiers. God is giving them more blindness because that's what they want. 
they are becoming more blind because that's what they want. How do we see more? We see what happens when we don't. So how do we see? How do you get sight to see more? How does it happen? The first thing we didn't notice is that no one opens their own eyes in the story. Do you see that? No one self-heals. There's no self-sight in the story. And it's actually more shocking than that. There's no one in the story that's even asking for sight. There's no one in the story seeking sight. If Isaiah was here, he'd say there's no one seeking sight. No one. No one whatsoever. So how do we see if you can't self-heal, if you can't self-sight, how do we see? Did you, know to, did you notice that Elisha is the only character in this story who's named? Uh, kings are just kings in this story. They're not named, but everybody knows who they are. Of course, that's Ben-Hadid II and Jehoram, the king of Israel. Everybody that read this would know that. Everybody in the account knows that. And then there are servants, servants of the king. They have names. Maybe one was Naaman. Elisha's servant had a name. In the previous story, he was called Gehazi. Now, Gehazi is probably not this guy, but they're not named. It's almost like this whole story has put everything in black and white in 10 pixel, fuzzy and faded, but one person. And so the only way you're going to see is you can't see the fuzzy and the faded. They have no names, and you're not supposed to. But you are supposed to see a 6K high-definition prophet because only the prophet gives sight only the prophet opens eyes in this story only the prophet so Syrian king do you want to see more Syrian soldiers do you want to see more Israeli king, do you want to see more? Servant of Elisha, do you want to see more? Exiles in Babylon, do you want to see more? Present day readers and hearers of this passage, do you want to see more? Teenager with the girl that just broke up with you, do you want to see more? Professor that just got denied tenure, do you want to see more? Single parents struggling to even buy your kids Christmas gifts. Do you want to see more? Behold, the prophet. This text sure wants you to. How does Elisha open eyes? How does he do it, though? Notice that it's not wordlessly. It's not without verbal power. It's not without divine words. Every time he opens eyes, he's speaking. Every time he opens eyes, he's verbalizing. Every time he opens eyes, he's releasing 
words with power. I mean, this is why he's saying, open their eyes. I mean, way back in the beginning when Genesis is recording how this world was made and how this world was sustained, it describes God speaking it into being. Let there be light. And there was. And that's why the psalmist, when he's writing through all his devastating, distressful suffering that he's experienced in his life, at the end of it, he says, oh, God, you've made me hope in your words. Your words, when I unfold them, release light, release sight. I see more. And that's why the better Elisha, when his friend died, and he's been dead for three days, literally melting in the desert heat. Lazarus, come out. And he does. We see more by the power of a prophet's words. How does Elisha open eyes? Certainly not by deserving it, not by earning it, not working for it, not performing for it. Certainly not by loving God. Certainly not by loving others. Certainly not by being holy. Certainly not by being devoted. Certainly not by being committed. Certainly not by even asking for it. No one here is seeking sight, but they see. Walking into Samaria, which is 15 miles away from Dotham, that's the capital of Israel. So the Syrian army has just walked into the capital of Israel. They once were surrounding, but now they're surrounded. It's over. And each soldier is saying, did I write that letter? I hope I did. Because we're done. And then the craziest thing is that the prophet, the one they're hunting, the prophet, their mortal enemy, the prophet that they were sent to kidnap, the prophet doesn't <laughs> destroy them. He welcomes them. And he says, you're my brothers. You're my friends. You are accepted. You are welcomed. Have a feast. Let's throw a party. Which is freaking out the Israeli king. Of course, the last line of the story reads this way. It's the last line. This is it. And it's done and we're done now with this world. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. I bet they didn't. But you know what's funny again? I mean, I just sometimes I get so frustrated with scholars. They read this and they go, well, you know, it's because, well, you know, because everything was so weird and freaky. They just didn't want to go back to that land like it was haunted, like it was a haunted house. But there's another way to look at it. Perhaps, perhaps it's grace that's haunting. Perhaps when you come in contact with the prophet and he meets you and welcomes you, with grace, it changes everything. Your friends, 
Perhaps the Syrians, those soldiers, are now useless soldiers in a war against the prophet because they're on the same team. Seeing a gracious prophet is how you see more. And if you see more, it changes everything. 